0: to the Adventures in Advising podcast. This is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 85. Thank you for tuning in. If you don't already, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. On today's episode, our special guest is Alex Kunkel from Nevada State University. Alex started in academic advising as a peer advisor back in 2007 and following graduation was hired as a full-time advisor at Western Oregon University. Through several years at his alma mater, Alex accepted a position at Nevada State University, formerly Nevada State College, in 2017. Alex is the Director of Academic Advising at Nevada State, overseeing the Centralized Academic Advising Center. Alex has been actively involved in NACADA since 2012, giving his first presentation at the Region 8 Conference in Portland, Oregon. Since then, Alex has delivered over two dozen regional, annual, and international presentations and has written several publications for Academic Advising Today. Additionally, Alex has served on a number of regional and association level committees, chaired the Probation Dismissal Reinstatement Interest Group, the Global Awards Committee, and the Annual Conference Advisory Board, and chaired two NACADA conferences. Alex was a participant in the Emerging Leaders Program and subsequently also served as a mentor. Alex was awarded the New Advisor of the Year Award in 2013 and the Outstanding Advising Administrator Award in 2022. Alex will begin his term as the Administrative Division Rep and on the Nakata Council following the annual conference in Orlando 2023. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Now, listeners, just got to hear your bio, and I know there will be a lot to chat about, but can you go a little bit more into your journey into higher ed and where you are currently at?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, My journey uh, in higher ed really started in the way that it starts for a lot of people, which is I just kind of fell into it. When I was pursuing my undergraduate degree, I originally was planning on becoming a high school history teacher. And I was pursuing that for the first couple of years. Um, At the time, I had a roommate who worked in academic advising, and they suddenly had a departure of several student workers. Um, And so she recommended uh, me to her boss at the time, and I went in for an interview and was hired as a student worker. And it was actually once I got into um, academic advising as a peer advisor that I started to realize that my journey was more suited for higher education than the traditional K through 12 environment. Um, And so I changed my major. Pursued uh, an alternative degree. Um, Actually, I got two bachelor's degrees one in communication studies and second in social science. Uh, But the intention was probably to go towards higher education following my graduation. I was fortunate that after I graduated, uh, my supervisor at the time had a temporary position open, and I decided to throw my hat in the ring for that um, and was hired into that role. And the temporary role lasted. Uh, quite a while. And then eventually, I was hired on um, as a full-time um, academic advisor. I stayed in that role for a number of years, um, was promoted uh, into a coordinator of academic advising role. And then in 2016, I decided it was a uh, time for the next step. Um, I knew that my supervisor really didn't have any intention of being Western Oregon at the time, and so I knew that if I wanted to move up, I was going to need to move elsewhere. Started applying around uh, for director-level positions, and that was an exciting process um, because I wasn't really sure how I was going to stack up um, at the time. I had completed my master's degree at that point, but I had served at one institution my entire career, but there was interest there, which was exciting, and I was able to be specific, uh, really looking for what I was looking for in an employer and a location that was right for me and for my family at the time. And so that brought me to Las Vegas or Henderson, which is a suburb of Las Vegas for Nevada State College, where I became their first director of academic advising. Uh, They had academic advising on campus in an academic advising center, uh, but they had never hired a director. They had an administrative level position that kind of oversaw multiple Offices, um, but not somebody who had expertise in academic advising or, or direct experience in um, academic advising. So I really got to build the office um, the way that I wanted to, and they gave me a lot of flexibility to, you know, redesign everything. They had started to transition to a centralized model before I got there, uh, but there were still some outliers, um, some faculty advising, especially after um, students reached. Uh, 60 credits, uh, we transitioned the students over to a faculty advisor, but it was more of an informal process. There wasn't a full mandatory advising or anything like that for students after they left the advising center. Um, So we expanded mandatory advising. Uh, We have further centralized almost all advising on campus with the exception of a few professional programs. We do entire um, mandatory advising for all other populations here. And I've been in this role um, for the last six and a half years uh, as the director, and I'm currently pursuing my uh, doctorate degree in public policy. I'm really focused on higher education policy and how policy can impact student success in higher education. So that's sort of my background and where I'm at today
0: feel like you don't have time to do anything else after everything you just named. <laughs> I, I have a lot of goals, but uh, <laughs> time time is always the issue. Right. Now, what struck me is like you were mentioning in terms of moving up and the term you used was like you were excited with this whole process, you know, looking at other institutions and, you know, dr- looking for director positions. And I would think that that term probably most people would say it's nerve wracking uh, to go through that process. But for you, like you actually looked at it from... A more positive type of standpoint.
1: I did. I mean, the hardest thing for me when I was thinking about leaving was actually leaving my supervisor. Um, And for those of you who know who my former supervisor is, you'll know why. Um, Working for this individual was a great experience. She's my mentor, and she really, she really gave me a lot of opportunities as i was developing as a professional i mean i remember as a student worker yes i had had um, jobs before hourly jobs before in retail and things like that but this was really the first professional setting um, that i had ever been in and i came from very much uh, a lower to middle class background I, you know first gen on one side and the other side they went to college but i didn't really feel that i i got that um sort of professional support um or or preparation for college at the time. And so my mentor really became someone who guided me through a lot of um, my development. And so leaving that individual was was the, the most um, frightening thing about the, the process, but I knew it was time um, for me. And if I wanted to continue my development, I was going to need to, to sort of step out on my own and uh, do that elsewhere. And so that's why it was exciting. Um, It was also a very small town. And again, for those of you who know me, uh, my personality does not typically uh, want to be in a a small town, quiet uh, solitude. That's not who I am. Uh, So being able to look at different uh, larger cities uh, and more opportunity um, was was exciting because I had spent 12 years, including my undergraduate degree time in, in a very small town. And it was, it was time, so I was excited, uh, even though it was going to be a big change. And, and again, I, I don't know, I did not know what the future would necessarily bring. Am I somebody who will excel in a director type of role, supervising people um, and really setting the policy and the direction of an office? I just kind of jumped in and I, I
0: believed in myself, um, which was hard, but um, exciting. And being at Nevada State University, like you kind of described a little bit about the centralized advising model types of students that, that, that you meet with. For those that uh, want a little bit more info or not sure about Nevada State University, how would you describe your institution?
1: So Nevada State University is um, one of the fastest growing institutions in the country. We opened in 2002, so we're just over 20 years old. And actually, this July, we officially became Nevada State University. Um, We primarily serve um, as a teaching institution. Uh, We're not a research one institution. We are very small, small class sizes, personalized uh, learning experiences for our students, trying to fill that need for teaching um, students in Nevada and providing opportunities for students who may not... Um, traditionally have been able to reach higher education. Our president calls these students the new majority. Uh, we are a Spanish serving institution. Um, over half of our students are eligible and uh, almost 60% are first-generation students. About 4,500 undergraduate students. We only offer one, um, currently one master's program, but it really has been the focus to provide that opportunity um, to students and still maintain that sort of personalized learning experience that not all research one institutions are able to provide um, to students and just a different experience that some students may be looking for rather than going to a larger um, R1 institution. Uh, Nevada State uh, very much reminds me of my, my former institution my alma mater, 4,500 students, Hispanic serving institution. So say a teaching focus. Um, so sort of the same experience. So it made that transition for me a little easier in that it was the same type of institution. I wasn't going from um, a four year to a community college or a four year to a large R1. But Nevada State really is a place that and, and I know that all institutions say this, but it really is a place for the students that. Their number one priority is the students. And so when I come up with a new policy or a new idea and it's going to benefit students, there is a lot of support from the institution um, to make that happen. And that's the kind of place that Nevada State is. It's also very innovative in that. When we were founded, we based our entire um, policy and curriculum and everything after one of the larger institutions here in Nevada, in the University of Nevada Reno, flagship institution here in the state. But we're a different institution than UNR is. And so the policies and the procedures that may work for them don't necessarily work for Nevada State. And so we've been given a lot of flexibility to say, Let's look at the population that we're serving, and how can we adjust our policies, our procedures, our curriculum to fit their needs? Um, and that's and everyone rolls up their sleeves and and tries to make that happen. And it's it's a work in progress. Um, even though we're twenty years old in the grand scheme of things, twenty as an institution is very young, and we're still we're still learning and we're still adapting. But there's a lot of energy here to make positive change uh, for the students and to build an institution that we feel is going to best support that goal.
0: And you were mentioning uh, that since July of this year that your institution had the name changed from, from Nevada State College to Nevada State University. So what's your take on, on that change? Like, What does that mean to you that you're now Nevada State University? You know, for academic advising, um, it's a huge benefit. Uh,
1: We would be meeting with students who, not to to any fault of theirs, but would confuse us for a community college. The community college of Southern Nevada became the college of Southern Nevada, still a community college, still um, primarily offering two-year degree, two-year associate's degrees. And Nevada State College had always been a four-year institution offering bachelor's degrees. But there was, just through name, A natural confusion between the two, especially when you have two other universities in the state that are more well-known, University of Nevada, Reno, and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, And so there was always that sort of confusion that, oh, I'm here to get my associates. And what would be the most upsetting is when a student would pay for their application fee, they would be admitted, they would come to us thinking that they were going to be able to pursue their associates to which our advisors would then have to say, unfortunately, this is who we are as an institution. So the name change itself, hopefully, and again, we're only two months in at this point, but hopefully will help further define who we are as an institution and what we can offer the community. And so from an advising standpoint, we're very excited for the change. Um, The whole college is really leaning into this sort of rebranding and reintroducing ourselves to the community as a four-year institution that offers that personalized learning experience, but at an affordable cost that may better serve students that are looking for that um, small feel hometown style community. And so it's very exciting to to put ourselves out there. Um, We're relaunching the website. You know, we just got new email addresses. Everything's new and fresh. Um, So it's very exciting um, to be here right now as we're, we're going through this change.
0: Yeah. How has I been like going through the whole process of renaming everything, like making sure that, OK, my email signature, letterhead, website, business cards, that you're not forgetting anything or finding something like, oh, it still says college and we need to change it the university?
1: Yeah, I mean our marketing team is great, and they've rolled out a lot of materials for us. Uh, but we're going through everything, and I'm sure in two years we'll dig up some file that you know we never rebranded. Um, but it's it's a work in progress, and it's not something that you know day one everything switched over. We're sort of rolling everything out uh, step by step. But even something along the lines of uh, a random account that. You know, Nakata, for example, I have to make sure to go into Nakata and change my email address. Now, fortunately, our, uh, you know, existing or our prior email addresses are still going to remain active. So no one's going to bounce back anytime soon, but, you know, it will happen. And that's just the growing pains of going through a, a large transition like this. But our marketing team has been great and prepared us for this. And so it's, it's uh, just something that every day we're just making extra changes and, and hopefully we catch everything. So, what's your role as director of academic advising entail? You know, it's it's evolved over time. The first several years I was here, it really was building the advising center. Um, we've grown from six, seven staff members when I started in uh, 2017 to now we're at 19 staff members. Uh, we have 11 full time academic advisors. We have several um, office leadership positions, including an associate director that never existed, two assistant directors that never existed before. So the first several years was really building out the office and setting up the policies that would directly support students. Mandatory advising was a big one that we have constantly expanded from only you know, seeing first-year students to now seeing students all the way through graduation in some cases. The, the last few years has really transitioned my role to focus more on broad enrollment management. I report up through the provost's office, and enrollment management is really within their purview here at Um, The college, so the Office of Admissions and Recruitment, the Office of Financial Aid, the Office of the Registrar, and the Academic Advising Center are sort of the four um, key uh, stakeholders in that enrollment management goal. So creating policies and procedures that will support enrollment management, but really cross-collaborating with those other directors to try to find ways in which we can not only increase New enrollment, but also maintain a high level of uh, retention, making sure that the students that we do admit are supported and can be successful um, in the campus environment and here at the university. Um, and that's really been the last the last several years of my role and how it's evolved over time. The day to day of the office has definitely. My focus on the day-to-day of the office has definitely decreased over the last several years. I I rely on my um, associate director and my assistant directors to really um, hold down the fort as it uh, would be. And um, while I set the the general guide or tone of the office, the day-to-day, I really let them handle it. And I'm fortunate that I have a great uh, group of advisors who are really capable – passionate about the work that they do, and it's taken time to build that staff. And, you know, when you have a staff of 19, as as anyone who knows, you know, turnover is going to be high um, because, you know, an academic advisor, it's a hard job, especially here at Nevada State. Um, Again, constantly evolving policies and curriculum as a new institution. It's a lot for the advisors to keep up on, but uh, we're finally at a place in which our team is, is solid and I'm really excited about um, the future of the office and sort of who we have in these key roles that will really be there to support the students. And so I trust my team to sort of you know, manage that day to day so I can focus on some of the larger university needs um, and how we can continue to build, build Nevada State.
0: And your office has grown a lot you supervise a lot more people now than than when you first started there so many different policy changes so i mean i guess through the years have you have you learned anything about yourself whether it's as a supervisor as a manager um, or as an administrator on campus
1: yeah um you know the the biggest learning experience that i have and it's one that i still i still have to fight sort of my inner my inner um demons i guess i'll say is i i need to slow down and that's some that's a big tip that i would give any new director is think uh be patient and really reflect on or dissect every aspect of a decision before you rush into it and i've made a lot of those decisions that i've said this is what's best um, and let's, let's move forward with it. And then, you know, uh, in hindsight or, or retrospect, it's been, okay, well, maybe we could have done that differently. Maybe if we, you know, looked at it from a different angle or, or brought in different stakeholders, um, yeah, the outcome may have been different, maybe positive, maybe negative. But I think, um, my biggest challenge has always been to, to slow down, uh, and not just, just push everything forward. Uh, one of my, um, sort of mantras is what's next. And it's from one of my favorite TV shows, the West wing. And I'm always looking at what that next project, that next goal is going to be. And, you know, just even writing my strategic plan for a, a new, um, side of the office that we just developed this year. Um, I'm writing the strategic plan for next year. We've got about 30 goals and that's a lot, so I have to think to myself, what are the key goals that we're trying to achieve? And let's focus on those instead of trying to rush through all 30. What are five? What are seven? What are 10 that we can focus on and maybe give it more time and do consideration? Um, and that, that still has is a challenge of mine, but one that I've learned over the last six years, patience and, and just slow down a bit more with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into the admissions game, satire edition, and uncover my top secrets for surefire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions
0: game wherever you podcast. Yeah, definitely a work in progress. Yes. So within your obviously, like so talking about the centralized advising model, uh, was that similar to like your previous institution in Oregon, or totally separate? <laughs> It was different
1: in Oregon, so uh, when I was at the Academic Advising Center um, at Western, we were basically an exploratory and core curriculum advising center. Um, Although we were also known as the fixers, when a uh, campus department would be struggling with advising um, at the faculty level, we would sort of try to create some structure and maybe advise students for a period of time. Maybe they had some faculty turnover and they just couldn't support their large um, student caseload, we would step in and help until they stabilized or maybe create a new process for them. And But the focus really there was sort of that exploratory student and um, advising the general education requirements of the institution. So when I came to Nevada State, while there was a faculty advising component, this, the goal was still um, for at least the professional staff to centralize as much as possible so a few years after i got here we absorbed um, one of the the schools here the school of liberal arts and sciences and took on all of their advising and centralized that Um, and just this year we have done the same with our school of education Um, so other than our um, admitted nursing students everything at this point is centralized which Obviously there's, there's pros and cons to that. Um, I, I fundamentally believe in the power of uh, faculty advising and the role that faculty can serve um, students in, in a way that professional advisors simply can't. We don't have the expertise in the field to be able to talk about what faculty know and what they've experienced in their careers. I can talk about the curriculum um, for nursing, but I've never been a nurse and the faculty have that expertise experience. So even though we're centralizing advising, how can we make sure that faculty still play a key role in the student experience and, and maintain that connection with faculty in one way or another? And that's been sort of um, the big focus as we continue to centralize. Is yes, there are benefits like you know unified training, uh, direct supervision that we can provide every day versus you know sometimes it's a nine month contract for faculty or sometimes reports. Sometimes reports to your department head. There's a consistency with um, centralized advising, but making sure that the faculty uh, stay in that key role is um, something that we still strive for here and, and uh, try to keep those connections between the students and the faculty, but also the advisors and the faculty. We want to keep those relationships strong. Um, so it was different coming in here, uh, but uh, there was the appetite to centralize, so there wasn't a lot of resistance a lot of support from the administration um, and the faculty as well um, to move in this direction which made that sort of transition much easier.
0: Nice. Do you feel like students um, have a pretty good idea now that you have pretty much meet with pretty much most of the students now in the centralized model that there's really no confusion where a student knows where to go and there can be a handoff to, to faculty in certain situations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do. And we work with students from the very beginning. Like we are their orientation. We are getting to know them. And again, the the goal of the the institution is really that personalized experience. So we want the student to know we are your advisor and we are your first point of contact. No matter what you need, give us a call. Come and see us. We're here for you. And because we have such a... um, Robust advising team. Students can get in basically when they need to. They, they don't have long waits. Um, I mean, obviously, peak advising is a challenge for any advising office, but they can get in and see us whenever they need us. And um, so they know that we're here for them. Um, and we know through time. And, and this has been, you know, a, a goal of mine and, and actually I've relied on my, my current assistant director to really forge a lot of these relationships with faculty. So we do have those key points of contact. and We can say, oh, you want to go talk to Dr. Such and Such, and they will be able to help you with X, Y, and Z. And having those um, key relationships and faculty that really do lean into that um, sort of mentorship role Um, has helped. And um, it just makes the student experience better. Um, It's that warm handoff that um, we pride ourselves on here, um, again, with that personalized experience. Um, So students are definitely um, aware of, of where to go and who to turn to. And if they don't, we also have a really strong success network platform um, that's also ran out of our office. So if students are falling off track and faculty are the first ones to see that or catch that, we have a really good referral system, gets them to an advisor, gets them to a success coach, gets them to a counselor, whatever it may be. Um, And so that sort of wraparound service is something that helps um, with that centralized advising to get them to the key people when it's necessary.
0: And since you are centralized, do you also do your advisors also meet uh, with their students when they happen to maybe fall on like some sort of academic warning, dismissal, probation type status?
1: We do and we don't. So the advisors do. If if they happen to be meeting with a student and they recognize that the student is falling off track in one way or another, um, we will intervene and we will have that conversation with them. But we also have a dedicated success team um, that really monitors that population either through... The e-alert system and and sort of a proactive or um, after the fact, in a reactive way, after grades have been published, we um, reach out to them. We have mandatory um, advising with our success team for students who have fallen into academic warning, probation, or um, suspension to try to correct things and get them back on the right track and keep them um, at the university. Um, But the advisors can also serve in that role if they happen to be meeting with them because oftentimes, again, we're the first point of contact for many of these students. And so we kind of tag team those those services with our success team. And since they're out of um, our office as well, it just makes it easy to sort of get them to the right person uh, when necessary.
0: And with, I mean, I would assume I'll find out shortly, but with a lot of the conversations that your advisors have had, you know, with uh, conversations you've had with students from meeting with them and you being the first ones to see them at orientation, meeting with them throughout their time at the institution through graduation. Is this where your article that that you worked with a couple other individuals came about, the one that's uh, titled Shameless Supporting Students Experiencing Shame and Guilt Through Academic Advising?
1: Yeah, so you know, I've I've always tried to approach my writing for advising from um, sort of an interdisciplinary approach. And I think some of the best, um, some of the best work that's coming out of academic advising uh, looks at the work that we do and, and tries to apply a concept or a theory that works in other fields. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that academic advising can sort of pride itself on is we're going to pull the best of everything. Um, And so the shameless article really came out of um, some work that my colleagues were looking into and had applied to their work. And we sort of uh, went into the article with that sort of psychology counseling lens um, and said, these are some things that our students were noticing are experiencing um, and how can we support them when they're experiencing a shame or guilt, um, with their work or, you know, a lot of, uh, our students are dealing with, you know, imposter syndrome or, um, you know, uh, just a lack of a sense of belonging. Um, and so trying to look at those concepts that we all know about in student development, but apply uh, sort of that interdisciplinary approach to the work that we do in That's that's where um, a lot of my writing and focus has always been, and what interests me um, in trying to bring something new to the field so that everyone can um, benefit from it.
0: I mean, in in that article, I mean, you talked about shame and guilt and being like these secondary emotions and that advisors, in a sense, need to recognize uh, some of these cues. And, And as much as shame and guilt are similar, it's also mentioned that they're very distinct in the sense that, you know, guilt arises from a negative evaluation of one's behavior, but shame might arise from maybe a negative evaluation of oneself. So I guess in your experience, let's say you have a new advisor. How can advisors be more aware of these emotions during these conversations that they're having with students? I think
1: the two things that I I talk about with uh, my new advisors are, you know, you've probably experienced these things as well. You were a student once. um, Lean into the experiences that you have, and it is okay to share those experiences in, in a way to connect with your students and so recognize what you have gone through and try to put yourself in their shoes thinking that 10 years ago five years ago you may have been going through um, the exact same uh thing and the other thing that i typically will try to to tell my advisors is that i mean we all well Many of us know that emerging adulthood is this sort of new developmental stage in, in a life cycle of, of an individual. And our students aren't fully formed yet, and they're still trying to figure out um, who they are. So they may be going through things for the first time that they've never experienced before. And I, I just mentioned imposter syndrome a second ago. Um, but, but the other one is, you know, this sort of sense of failure oftentimes uh, in your first semester at an institution it's the first time you may have ever failed a test or failed a class I and mean, you may have been a stellar student in your k-12 experience and then for the first time failed and our students students today what I've noticed is they don't necessarily see this as an event they see this as a characteristic of themselves and I tell my advisors to remind students that this is just something that has happened. It's not who you are. And so trying to put yourself in their shoes um, and remember that they're still developing, they're still not quite fully formed yet, and that this could be the very first time that they've ever experienced whatever they may be going through. And just to help them through that as much as you can, be, you know, a person that is there for them as much as they need um, you to be and form that relationship. And, you know, the stronger the relationship, the stronger um, the bond that an advisor has with their advisee, uh, the more successful a student will will be in the long
0: run. Great advice. And so moving on to maybe going to things you do outside of the institution, in your bio, It talks about, you know, you're very heavily involved within Nakata. What's that journey been like for you?
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to
0: starting your podcast today.
1: You know, it really goes back to... um my mentor that I mentioned earlier, she uh, was was involved in Nakata and, and still is very involved in the association. Um, and so early on, she basically told me to lean into it, and and helped me, you know, build connections. I think um, it was Jennifer Joslin who really talked about um, finding a mentor in the field is key. And, and this individual, my mentor, was that. Uh, not only professionally, but also through the association for me, um, provided me the opportunity to attend. Like I said, I attended my first conference in 2012. It was a regional conference. Uh, she said, come up with a presentation proposal. And I didn't know what to write about. Um, but I had put together at the time what, was, what I thought was a very innovative note-taking system. We had only used paper notes in the office. I helped the office transition to a digital note system that was entirely out of Microsoft Excel. And in 2012, you know, we, we don't maybe remember, but we didn't have these massive node systems like we do now with EAB and Starfish and some of these other products. Um, and so at the time, Excel was what we had. And so I presented on it. And that was really my first introduction to Nakata. I got heavily involved in Region 8. Um, 8 is indeed great. Uh, There was a lot of people that really embraced me and and opened their arms to me um, within the region, went to a lot of regional conferences. I was the communication coordinator for the region um, and got really involved in, you know, volunteering for every year, volunteer for the regional conference, whether it be the tech coordinator, the communication coordinator, or whatever it may be, getting involved in that. And, And through that, I, um, was I was recognized as, as you know a new advisor of the year in 2013, which really just you know boosted my confidence and wanted me to get more and more involved um, in Nakata. Uh So I applied for the Emerging Leader Program and. I was uh, not only fortunate enough to, to be accepted, but through a, a weird twist of fate, I was paired with um, somebody who, you know, is a giant um, in the field. I, I was originally paired with a, with a great individual. Um, he, he was really passionate about um, the program, but... Um, unfortunately he left the field of advising. And so I found myself without a formal mentor in the Emerging Leaders Program. Um, and Charlie Nutt gave me a call and said, Hey, I'd love to be your mentor for the next two years. And so, um, I got paired with Charlie and, you know, he asked me, what are your goals? And I said, I want to chair a conference. He said, do it. And so I was able to, um, relaunch and, um, sort of introduce a state drive-in conference to the state of Oregon, um, the OAAA Conference of 2016. Uh, we hosted it on our campus at Western Oregon and brought um, over 300 advisors from the state, um, all to a very small town, Monmouth. Uh, and then shortly after that, I was given the opportunity to host a, or to chair a regional conference Uh, So I chaired the Region 8 Conference in Montana in 2017. In fact, I accepted my new job as uh, the director here in Nevada and then said, and a week later, I have to fly back to Montana to chair this conference. And those were both great opportunities. And so I decided that I wanted to, you know, continue to give back to the association. Um, I had chaired a couple of committees at that point, but I um, applied to be a mentor and my emerging leader at the time was, was really following a similar um, trajectory and we had, we had a good connection. Um, and so I uh, got paired with an amazing emerging leader um, who is now taking on committee chairship of her own. And as um, you said, when you were uh, you know, sharing my bio, I'm now stepping into um, the administrative uh, division representative role. Um, and Nakata Council because of that as well. So it's, it's a new experience. And uh, I don't know what, what the future with um, Nakata and, and will bring for me, but uh, continuing to lean in and finding those sort of um, opportunities or as many people in the association, uh, association say, voluntunities. You know, if someone shoulder taps you, say yes. And that's the best thing I can say. I know mean, we're all busy. We all have a ton of things on our plate, but it is the connections that I have built through Nakata that is the reason that I am here um, and I've been told that I mean, my the, my boss who hired me at Nevada State and, and he's at a different institution now he specifically said that you know having Charlie as one of my references and my connection with Nakata really brought a lot to the table for for them when they were looking at someone to build an advising program and and NACADA is the name in advising. There's a lot of other great associations that that do work with advising, but NACADA is the association for academic advisors. And so, um, and I, I do the same thing for my staff. I encourage them, get involved. I will find a way to get as much money as possible to send you to a regional conference or to get you to do a webinar or whatever it may be, but volunteer you know, person, the ask me booths, even something as, as basic as spending two hours at the registration desk, you're going to meet people, you're going to be provided with opportunity and five, seven, 10 years down the line, you're going to have a reference that may help you get that next step or get that next job or write that paper with a colleague that all of a sudden it's like, now we're publishing for the Nakata journal. Um, Just say yes. And that's really been my journey with
0: yeah, I mean, it's crazy and a wonderful experience in terms of like whether you're at a conference and connections you can make or just getting out of your office on campus. And like you said, go do an Ask Me booth or go you know, spend two hours here or even just walking to get some coffee or something. The people you might run into that then you can build collaborations with. Exactly. I mean, I'm on this podcast
1: today because you and I, you know, I've known you for for several years now and we met. At an agata conference and and uh just through through running in, in similar circles we we've run into each other a million times at these events and you see i mean especially for those and, and again we we know like i said burnout in the field is high so some people two three years and they realize that um advising may not be the the right career for them but for those people who who really have a passion for this work and who get involved in the association just naturally through their work in academic advising. I've got some lifelong friends, uh, through the association. I mean, people that I've known since 2012, I mean, our new, um, executive director of Nakata, Kyle Ross,
0: I met him
1: at my first conference in 2012 and we've been friends ever since. And, and every year we see each other at these conferences and it's just like, it's running into someone that you've always known. Um, and so, you know, getting, building those relationships and having those um, experiences, add a different side of things to what is a very difficult job. And going to these conferences or doing these types of things just reinvigorates you and, and remembers why you're you're doing the work that you're doing every
0: day. Yeah, absolutely. And you are mentioning Charlie and I. So uh, I was actually messaging with him yesterday. I told him that I was going to be interviewing you today. So he wanted me to tell you, and he's probably told you this before, you know this, but he said to tell you how proud he is of you. Uh, well, I appreciate that, yeah. So, what does Charlie that mean to you? You know,
1: I I have
0: my 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 mentor,
1: uh, my former boss, um, is still my mentor to this day. And, but Charlie is sort of Charlie's just something special, and you know, my mentor when she helped me develop and and was was. You know, putting me through the ropes, teaching me all of the things, you know, always talked about, you know, Alex, you can do you can do this, you can do that. And and I, I you know, I, I believed her and I, I believed in myself. But when Charlie tells me you can do this, um, it really is a confidence boost because so many people look to Charlie as, you know, he is and, and was Nakata for, for so long. Um, and so when he tells you even just that, you know, like what you just said, I, I appreciate hearing that. Um, because that's what it was with Charlie. He was just always so encouraging and supportive of whatever I wanted to do. He's like, "You can do this," and I. Um, it, it really helped me lean into lean into things like you know chairing a conference. I I didn't have event planning experience. I didn't really have budgeting experience, but I'm like, you know what? I think I can do this. And and it really because was because Charlie was just there as as um, a support and, and someone that I could lean on just to bounce ideas off of as well. Like I, like you said, you were just texting with him. I, I could text Charlie right now and be like, I don't know what to do here and he'll just throw, you know, 50 different ideas my way. And, um, and I'll just run with one or seven or 50 of them. And so he was always just somebody that it was just so warm and, and inviting and welcoming, uh, to, to me and, and, um, you know, I, I still talk to him as frequently as I can, and I know he's um, enjoying retirement, so I, I don't necessarily want to bug him constantly, but he is there if I need him, and that's what Charlie is to do.
0: Thanks. And sooner, or maybe at the time this episode airs, you'll officially then be in the administrative division rep role and serving on also Nakata Council. But as of this recording, you're a few weeks away from that starting. So from your understanding, what will those roles uh, look like?
1: You know... Um, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of excitement with stepping into this role because there's a lot of opportunity in, in things that I haven't done yet. Um, you know, with all of my past roles that I've done through NACADA, whether it be the Global Awards Chair or now the Annual Conference Advisory Board Chair, I've always had sort of a singular focus. It, it's been, you're focused on this committee, you're focused on this advisory board. Um, with this, My biggest focus and my biggest goal, and I don't know how easy it's going to be, and I I don't know even if this is within the lane of, of the role, but it's how can we engage the association to get more people involved, to find those opportunities for people who are looking to, again, lean into Nakata, say yes to things. How can we get them involved? And also, how can we capitalize on the leadership and the expertise of those who have been in the association, who've lived the association for so long, you included, how can we keep you involved and provide new opportunities for um, people that have already given so much to Nakata, but maybe want to give a little bit more. Um, And so it's, it's that sort of balancing act of bringing in, you know, new people, but also remembering the people that got us here saying, can you give us a little more? Can you help solve this problem? Can you chair this really challenging committee or task force or whatever it may be so we can rely on on your experience in the association? And hopefully um, in my time as administrative division rep and, and also on the council, I'll, I'll be able to ask those questions and, and bring that sort of goal to the forefront. Um, and I think a lot of people share that goal, which is good. I mean, the, the membership and recruitment committee and retention committee is all about that. But how can, we, how can we share that whole together? And that's sort of what I'm most excited about um, in my upcoming role and, and over the next few years that I'll be, I'll be in this position.
0: Yeah, sounds good. And as we wind down with uh, this interview, uh, maybe something non-advising or hired-related. Uh, do I understand correctly that I heard that you're a Raiders fan?
1: I am a Raiders fan. Um, some people will say it's unfortunate, and, and sometimes <laughs> I, feel the, I feel the same way. But I am a, a lifelong Raiders fan. Uh, it, it's a family thing for me. So my, uh, my grandfather was in the Navy in Alameda County in the fifties. And, and so when Oakland got the Raiders in, in the early sixties, he was all in and uh, somehow it just stuck with the family. And I've been, I've been both uh, blessed and cursed with that, um, over the years, but funny enough, I moved to, to Las Vegas in 2017 and two months after I moved here, they officially announced their move. And I was, you know, right on time to sign up for season tickets and uh so yes i have i have had the privilege of attending several raiders games um here in town and uh i haven't seen them win a ton but you know there's always next year or you know maybe this year but i don't think so but yes it is it is a a blessing and a curse that i am a raiders fan yes.
0: Like it, it's your team. You love going to those games. Awesome. You know, maybe they'll win in, at some point down it's one of work. these years. I mean, it's like me with baseball and the Padres. I always say next year. So,
1: You know, uh, unfortunately, I have, I have never tasted victory for any of my sporting teams. Uh, I am a lifelong Trailblazers fan. I'm a lifelong Seattle Mariners fan. And I'm an Oregon Ducks fan. So not a lot of winning, um, at least at the highest level for, for any of my teens um,
0: since I've uh, been the fan. So maybe I'm the
1: problem. I, I don't know.
0: <laughs> and uh, comic book wise, I heard you're a Batman fan. I am a Batman
1: fan. Uh, I, I appreciate um, comic books um, across the board, but uh, I really, you know, I, I was around comics um when I was a kid my dad kind of collected comics a bit but actually it wasn't really until I got to college that I found a, a real passion for comic books um I even took a you know a course or two on the you know the literature behind you know, graphic novels and comics and uh when Batman Begins came out in like 2005 I was just like this is awesome uh so much so that my very first uh tattoo maybe Maybe a mistake at the time, but I was 19, uh, was a Batman tattoo. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Batman fan and actually have just recently rediscovered uh, comic book collecting and uh, kind of leaning into that as a side hustle and, and really enjoying the hunt of um, of comic books and, and comic book culture.
0: Right, my favorite uh, storyline, I think, with Batman had to in the 90s with, with Nightfall. I don't think Not, anybody yeah. can beat that.
1: You know, I um, I just went through my uh, personal collection and that being some random books that I had from when I was a kid or that my, my dad had given me um, when I was younger. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, again, I'm leaning into the comic collecting. I, I sent a couple of them in to officially get graded. And uh, so I definitely have. Um, sort of the premiere issue of that Nightfall series um, and it is prominently displayed in my collection so very good storyline and, and there's so many that I can name and, and that's just with Batman I mean, stepping off to a million other ones I, I have a tattoo from the movie The Crow with Brandon Lee like, I, I love all kinds of comics and, and so it's, it's an exciting time to be a comic book fan and it gives you
0: something to, to look forward to um, in all my free time
1: that as you know I, I don't really have
0: Right. but Alex I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to do this at least and I think I've learned a lot more about you and hopefully listeners too can gain some insight from a lot of knowledge that you have through your years of experience especially your time uh, as director and then also the involvement you have um, before and still now and continuing in Nakata so Alex thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks Matt I appreciate it oh,